podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to AI Scouted on Anfield Index Pro. I'm Dave Hendrick, joined as always by Mr. Carl Matchett. How are you, sir? Relegated into second place in the league table of Spanish-speaking AI Scouted individuals. Yes, young Drinkle has taken the trip to Mexico to heart and is now babbling on in Spanish and confusing the bejesus out of me. Um, it must be tougher for you, though, given that you lived in Spain for years to see that Guy within two weeks has usurped you. I know. I mean, uh, clearly the, the, the key all along was, as we were discussing yesterday, when he was still in bed nursing a stinking Mexican hangover, uh, I didn't drink enough tequila while I was over there, and he's just literally absorbed all that information, all that language through his skin. That's exactly it. That is exactly it. In probably about two weeks, though, he'll have sweated out all of that tequila. It'll all be gone from his system, and he'll just be back to being Middlesbrough's own guy drinkle. Do you sweat up north? Probably not, actually. That's a good point. Given the coldness of where he lives, yeah. it will probably stay frozen within him for the next five years. Yeah, exactly so. So that, that's fine. We can do some classes with Guy for the next couple of seasons, and then, you know. By that time, maybe we'll get some sort of Spanish manager back in again and we'll just do the whole thing again. Yeah, that's a good point. Jürgen might leave in three years and perhaps Xabi Alonso could be the next Liverpool manager and, and Guy will be able to go and interview him in Spanish, so that'll be tremendous. Um, <laughs> poor Guy. We are here to discuss Liverpool versus Leicester City on Monday night. But, Carl, Leicester don't deserve an hour of our time. So, first thing we're going to do, we have a question here from Isaac Gilding. And as usual, Isaac has put time and effort into this question. So, I'll run through it. We've heard Dave talk about how he's not a fan of the current shape. Would Dave and Carl take this for next season? We only sign three players this summer. Moises Caicedo, Manuel Ugarte, and a very cheap right-back of your choice. Backup right-back of your choice. Matip, Milner, Ox, Naby and Bobby leave. The rest of the squad remains the same. So your starting 11 is Ali, Trent, Ibu, Virgil, Robbo, Caicedo and Ugarte as a double pivot, Mo, Cody and Diaz behind Darwin. Would this work? Is the back still too exposed? With that midfield to connect with the forwards well enough, is Mo too isolated in the shape? And how would our ro- uh, how, how would our remaining midfielders rotate in and out? Is there enough depth at the back, and is there enough depth up front? So, let's start with that premise of if all we signed this summer was Moises Caicedo, Manuel Ugarte, and let's just say because we picked him yesterday when talking about fixing the squad. Ainsley, Maitland, Niles. Would you be happy, Carl, if that was our summer? If the plan was to go 4-2-3-1 and those were the three players added? No. You wouldn't? I wouldn't even be close to happy if that was the case. What else would you want or what would you want instead? I would want... If the plan was 4-2-3-1, which is another thing I don't particularly want, um, but let's, let's say that that was... What do I think we need to go and do for a four-two-three-one? I mean, for starters, in this this um, recruitment that we've we've been handed as such, obviously you're looking now at Nat Phillips being promoted to the number four centre back. 
because uh, Matip's gone and there's nobody coming in. So it would just be Joe Gomez behind uh, Ibu and Van Dijk. So I think that's an issue. Um, the three coming in would at least need one more there. I think we need a change at left back as well, regardless of system, whether that's, you know, Robert decides to go elsewhere that you were talking yesterday for a big money move or whether we bring in someone who can dovetail with Robbo and Costas has to go. I think there needs to be a change there. I think that side used to be a real strength for Liverpool and the last... 18 months, I don't think it has been as much. I think that Robbo needs more serious competition, whether it's from an established player or a younger one who can come in to, to do the different role that we've got now, whatever it is. I think there needs to be a push in that area of the pitch. Um, I also don't think that just those two midfielders coming in is anywhere near enough. Like Even if we go to a 4-2-3-1, uh, who have we got here in the number 10? Cody as the 10 there? Cody as the 10. Um, so, I mean, his alternative in the current squad is, what, Curtis Jones, maybe? Curtis, Fabio because Carvalho, and Harvey, looking, I would say, are the three. Yeah, so then you're looking at Thiago and Fabinho and Henderson being the three central alternatives. Um, and Besetic. Sure. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't be very happy with this, to be perfectly honest. I don't think that the squad is a good fit in the wide areas for four-two-three-one at all. Um, I honestly don't think we're going to get huge amounts out of Trent in a four-two-three-one as well. When you consider the sort of the role that Salah is going to have to play. Um, oops, excuse me. Sorry. Um, I, I think that that's very very difficult. I think the the move here, if it was a four-two-three-one, which I'm not against would be to go in possession. Because at the moment it's 4-3-3 into 3-box-3. So with this setup, I think you're looking at 4-2-3-1 into a 3-3-3-1. So Trent would step into a midfield 3 in which he's on the right, Ugarte is the the 6, shall we say, and Caicedo covers the left. And then you're probably narrowing in your wide players, Trent and Diaz, playing in to out in those wide areas, and then Cody behind Darwin. Robbo, for me, is the biggest issue in that shape. Because I I do like the idea of that shape, but Robbo is an issue regardless. And I agree with you, even if we're sticking to a traditional back four, I do think Robbo becomes an issue because... I just think he's dropped off quite drastically. Um, so, you know, in a traditional back four, you could look at someone like Milos Kerkes of Ezra Alkmaar or Rayan Nuri of Wolves to potentially come in and replace Costas as the one who pushes Robbo. And, you know, the hope would be that they replace Robbo as a starter within sort of 18 months. If we're, we were doing something where <clears throat> Trent is going to continue to move into midfield as he does and we wanted it to be a back three defensively, then perhaps you would be looking at, again, someone like Goncalo Inacio or Piero Hincapié or uh, Lukeba from Lyon or Bastoni from Inter or whoever. So, like you, I would have major concerns over over the left-back spot. I would have serious concerns about our depth at centre-back because we know Ibu is injury-prone, Joe Gomez is injury-prone, Nat Phillips, frankly, is nowhere near good enough. Sepp Vandenberg 
is still a major question mark. I, I would want to keep him around next season regardless because he's homegrown. But I wouldn't necessarily want to be trusting him as the fourth centre-back. As the fifth, I'm fine. But not if Nat Phillips is one of the four. So those would be my two defensive concerns. Um, I'm actually okay with the midfield. I'm okay with Ugarte and Casado, with Fabinho and, and Thiago, plus Besetic and Henderson, and the possibility that I can still use Curtis there as well. But yeah, like I do then, I have concerns about our wing depth anyway, because we don't really have a backup for Mo. We, no, we just flat out don't have a backup for Mo. Harvey's probably the only one at the club who could play that side and be comfortable there, but he's not the same type of player. He doesn't have the speed. You won't, probably won't get the best out of him. And we don't really have a backup left winger either because Darwin, Cody and Jota all look much more comfortable through the middle. So it's kind of, you know, if Diaz isn't there, then what do we do? Which, which player yeah. do we push out of position and ask them to do the best that they can. So, you know, it is, it's concerning regardless of what the shape is, but the midfield is the one area I'd be okay with. Um, In terms of would it work, if you could be certain of fitness, I think it could work. I think the the defense at least would be properly protected with Ugarte and Caicedo there. I don't think you'd have any real risk of teams just galloping through the middle of the park the way they do against us now. Would the midfield two connect with the forwards well enough? Cody would be the big question mark there. Can Cody be that connector? Because Ugart and Caicedo are quite good on the ball. They're both good in terms of short and medium distance passing, neither great at long passing. But they're not inventive players. So Cody would have to be the one to drop in and try and link the play between them and the front two. But you do have the trend, trend factor. Um, yeah. I, I think where we've spoken about before that you need multiple avenues yeah. of attack. I think playing with the number 10 is so limiting in this regard because everything has to revolve around that. Everything has to be set off the ball for playing on the ball through that area of the pitch because you're not going to get you know the old Salah in a 4-2-3-1 running in all the time being the number nine finish because you have to fill those other gaps you haven't got a right side of midfielder there anymore so he has to do so much more of that he has I don't have a problem with because he's that kind mm. of player anyway but we don't have a right-sided outlet midfielder stroke winger sort of thing and you can't just play four forwards no. all the time it's just not there and I don't think Cody's that connector anyway no he pr- he's probably not um, I think it, like, it could work against some teams <clears throat> I think what, yeah. you'd, what you'd be looking to do is to get you'd have to keep Trent as a right back but you'd be pushing him way forward and sliding the other three across so you get Ibu Virgil plus left back Caicedo and Kanate, sorry, Caicedo and Ogart sitting in front of them, Trent pushing high and wide on the right, and Diaz high and wide on the left, and Mo moving into a more central area. So, you know, Diaz is almost like a very advanced left wing back, where you've got Cody then sort of floating in behind Mo and Darwin. I think it could work, but 
it would need everything to go right for it in terms of fitness, in terms of form. You couldn't really afford a drop-off in the wide areas because there's just no cover there. Cody would have to add certain elements to his game, including being a bit more aggressive. And yeah, the connectivity then becomes an issue because if you've just got basically a defensive five and an attacking five, who's linking the play there? Again, it would fall on Cody. And that's not really what his best attributes are. But there's part of me that I've said this to you before. I don't think next season is a season of, of challenging for major honours anyway. I think next season will be the season of transition. So if you were to say to me, we get Caicedo and Ugarte this summer, and then next summer we buy Inacio or Bastoni or whoever, and let's say Florian Verts. If I knew I could do that, I would take this as summer one, because I think it's going to take longer than people think anyway to rebuild this team to being a title contention team. And if I have Florian versus the 10 in front of those two ball winners, then I'm comfortable with, with the rest because I think he can connect the whole thing together. He is... I mean, I don't understand how we're not looking at him. I think he is absolutely outrageous. I think he's, I think he's a bigger prospect than Jude. I would put him and Jamal Musiala and Eduardo Camavinga as the kind of top three midfield prospects in the game right now. Pedri as well and Gavi as well, but I would put those three above everybody else. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I don't think we're going to be signing any of them, any of that calibre, any of that even age range, to be honest, this summer. Um, you know, at any point, if you've got the opportunity... Obviously, you can do so, but I think we have bigger priorities at the minute if we want to make sure that we are able to be around the challenge next year, even if it's not an actual challenge. But see, for me, I don't think we should be concerning ourselves with challenging for the title next season because that's the short-term thinking that has landed us in this mess. There's been no long-term planning at this club now for the last couple of seasons. Everything's been about now, now, now. And it's left us needing this massive rebuild where we need four starters, a backup keeper, a backup right back, ideally two backup centre-backs, you know, and a bit of wing depth as well because we haven't planned well enough. We've turned our noses up at certain players from certain leagues because we don't view them as being ready. And then when they come to the Premier League and do really well, well, all of a sudden, they're now too expensive for us. Moises Caicedo being the prime example. We were offered him from Ecuador for four million. And we said, no, go to Brighton and prove yourself and then we'll consider it. And now, two years later, the excuses are coming out of, oh, well, he's, he's a bit too expensive. We could have signed Chuameni before he went to Monaco. Offered on a plate. Edwards wanted him. No, he's, he's not ready. Hasn't proven himself yet. Let's see what happens when he proves himself. But he proves himself, and we spend months and months and months working on the deal to the point where we turn down the opportunity to sign Bruno Gomerish from Leon. 
because we're waiting for the right player or whatever the bullshit line normally is. And then we don't get the player and then we don't have any other alternative that fits whatever bizarre criteria has been come up with. And this entire season's been thrown away in the same way the 2021 season was thrown away because of a couple of injuries. Because we didn't plan properly. Because we kept Lalana and Lovren and garbage like that for too long. In the same way we've kept Milner too long, Henderson too long, we kept Mane too long. We would still have all of those players. They would all be staying and Bobby would be staying because, well, they'll help us more next year. Whereas we need to be looking at the next three years. And signing a Florian Verts at 20 in a year's time, having acclimatised the league, he could have that breakout season. The following season, he could be one of the best players in the league. But instead, we look for shortcuts or win-now moves that don't really help us win now because there's so much to do. Well, I do think there's a lot to do, but I think that that also kind of alludes to another point of this particular list is the only one you're getting any money in there for is Matip. And I don't think that's going to be very much, even if he does go. And to be honest, I don't expect him to leave this summer now anyway. Um, but if he was to go, I don't think we'd be getting more than five to ten for him, something like that. So you're looking at... 100. Yeah, ten, is, ten is probably the max. There's no... Like, the, the, the thing is, there's not much money in Europe. So, like, Joel, Joel is not moving to another English club. He's going to go to Syria or the Bundesliga. So you know, what are you looking at? Yeah, like you said, somewhere in that kind of five to ten million range. Maybe you get eight million and a couple of million in add-ons. But the bigger point is, Joel Matip should have been sold two years ago. He shouldn't still be at the club. Should have been sold two years ago. But again, there's no long-term planning here. Any Wijnaldum should not have been allowed Ronaldo's contract. Sadio shouldn't have got to twelve months. Emre Chan shouldn't have got to run out his contract. Albi Moreno shouldn't have been allowed to run out his contract. Lalana shouldn't have been run out his contract. Lovren got to 12 months left. Like, this is a lack of long-term planning because the manager refuses to let his players leave. He refuses to push them out the door when other people who are less personally connected to the players are advising him, look... For the good of the club, these players need to be moved on, and he just won't won't allow it. That's that's how you end up failing. That's how you end up not rebuilding your team properly. It's what happened to him at Dortmund as well. He held on to Nevin Subotic. The guy couldn't move. He could have sold him two years previously when Dortmund knew he had an issue, but still could have got good money from him from selling him. He insisted on holding on to him. He wouldn't sell Lewandowski with a year left on his deal. That was devastating to Dortmund. That's a that's a decision that they haven't fully recovered from because they could have got huge money for him, even with 12 months left on his deal. He was one of the best number nines in the world, bang in the middle of his prime. But they kept on kept hold of him because Jürgen insisted on keeping hold of him. I think maybe there's some of the time he perhaps... Could expect that emotional connection to go both ways and that they might just turn around and want to stay as well because he wants them to stay and that kind of thing so maybe then they would um, because it's happened a lot of times like you say here at Dortmund previously so perhaps there's something of that in it but even if there's not 
an element of regeneration is needed just to keep things going, and we haven't really done that very well at all. No, no, we have not at all. We have um, we've not done well in terms of our squad management since winning the European Cup. And I know we won the league title the year after. That was off the, the strength of what had been done prior to winning the European Cup because Sepp Vandenberg and Harvey Elliott as your summer having won a European Cup is absolutely laughable. And that is the summer where we should have started to make moves. We, we would have romped to the league anyway, but we should have been looking to strengthen so that we would be able to continue to do that and continue to just put our foot in everybody's throat for multiple years to come. We didn't. So, um, anyway, let's move on. Let's talk about Leicester City. Um, <laughs> I don't really know where to start, Carl. I suppose we can start with the fact that they sacked Brendan Rodgers on April 2nd and then took a week to find a manager and found Dean Smith, who'd last been seen getting sacked by Norwich, having failed there, having taken over only days after he was sacked by Aston Villa in what was probably a fairly poorly thought-out decision by both Norwich and Dean Smith. At that time, it, he, he looked like a guy at the end of his Villa tenure, who needed time away. Um, he's had a bit of time away from the game now. Since the sacking at Norwich just after Christmas, he took four months off, or three and a half months off, and returned to the game. Two questions. Why did they wait so long to sack Rodgers? Because it was fairly clear many, many months before that Brendan needed to go. And what did you make of the Dean Smith appointment? Um, if I can do them in reverse, I think the Dean Smith appointment is, one, because there's that thing of him having kept Villa up by suddenly making them really, really good defensively in that last part of the season when he did so. And secondly, I think that they probably took that as a safety approach of he also brought Villa up and well presumably they thought or he thought that they would bring Norwich up as well but that one didn't happen so I think that they've hedged bets there of possibly keeping them up and possibly bringing them up but actually he has only done one of each one and most recently didn't do either one so I'm not a big fan I don't think it was a great appointment but I don't think a lot of these late season changes have been very good appointments down at the bottom of the table to be perfectly honest Um, quite a lot of them puzzle me and Leicester are really, really poor. I, there's no other way to put it. They're so, so disorganised. They have terrible individuals defensively. They have some quality players, but they're such a mess. Like, there's no other way to put it. Uh, the run that they went on between sort of, what was it, mid-February and, and mid-April was like some of the worst football, mm. some of the worst attempts to be football that I've seen in a long time. Like some embarrassing displays. So this season, Leicester started the season with a draw over against Brentford where they went 2-0 up and threw it away and then proceeded to lose six in a row and seven out, out of eight with only a win over a, a hopeless Nottingham Forest team sandwich in there. 
then in December, coming back from the World Cup break, they lost four in a row and didn't win any of the five games uh, back. And then that run you mentioned from the 19th of February, starting with a 3-0 defeat away to Manchester United, up until the 15th of April, uh, ending with a 3-1 defeat away to Manchester City. They lost eight and drew one in a nine-game span. So there's three chunks and of the season. And that run lost in the FA Cup to a championship side. Oh, yes, absolutely. Don't think I've forgotten. Don't think I've forgotten about their FA Cup exploits. Scraping past Gillingham, scraping past Walsall, and then losing at home to Blackburn. Um, their League Cup run wasn't a whole lot better. Scraped past Stockport on penalties, beat Newport County and MK Dons, and then lost at the site of a decent team when Newcastle played them. But if you take that, those three runs in the Premier League, right? So those first seven games, that middle five, and then those nine. That's 21 games from a Premier League season where you've taken three points. Like that is, that is leaving yourself a ridiculous amount of work to do from the other 17 games. Now, I would say 34, maybe 35 points will keep you up this season. If you take three from 21... You need to take 30-plus from the other 17, which is almost two points a game. And when you're taking so little from the rest, like, they're very fortunate that there's a lot of bad teams in the league this year. And if you look at their wins, you know, they beat a really bad Forest team. They beat a really bad Leeds team. They beat a Wolves team that were a mess and had no manager at the time. They beat Frank Lampard's Everton, who everybody beat. They beat a really bad West Ham. They beat Aston Villa under Emery. That's probably their best win of the season. A 4-2 win away to Villa, where Villa should have smashed them and gifted them basically three of the four goals. And then they beat Spurs 4-1. And then they beat Wolves 2-1. And again, Wolves are, are fairly poor. So the Villa and Spurs wins, which came off the back of a draw with Brighton, that's the best run they've had in the league this season in terms of the, the calibre of opposition and the results taken. It's one of two runs where they took seven points from a possible nine. But then it, it was followed by losing eight of nine and drawing only once. And when you consider the fact that since that win over Spurs, they have taken a sum total of six points from the 12 games. Like... That is a catastrophic run that warrants relegation. And, you know, you go to Fulham on Monday and you get beaten 5-3 when they're missing their best player in Mitrovic, maybe their second best player in Pereira, they don't have Tim Ream, and they just, they just absolutely smash you. And you get back into the game because they get sloppy and you've got some talented attackers, but how on earth? Like you mentioned, Dean Smith, he's he turned that Villa team around by making them harder to score against, and seemingly by switching off Hawkeye, which is forgotten. That's the reason they stayed up: is that Hawkeye failed to give Sheffield United a goal. That's why they stayed up. But 
in Dean Smith's games in charge, which are, I think he took over April 10th. So, 3-1 defeat to City. There's three goals conceded. Conceded one against Wolves. One against Leeds. There's five. And then seven in the last game. 12 goals conceded in his five games in charge. So, he hasn't done the defensive side for them. And like you said, he only did that one set of two attempts. Um, so are, are they banking on him to bring them back up? Because as you mentioned, it didn't go so well with Norwich. And when you look at this Leicester squad, I think it's likely to get decimated this summer. We know Thielemans is leaving. There are zero chance of either James Madison or Harvey Barnes setting foot in the championship again. I don't imagine Jewsbury Hall will be all that enthused because he's far too good for that level. Will Fendidi probably goes. Ianacho probably goes. And then who else is there? Like, who's good that's left? Ricardo Pereira, he's always hurt. James Justin, he's always hurt. Like, that's not a squad that's coming back up if all those players leave. And they're probably going to have to sell them because... Their their financial situation is not great. They've been they've been living well beyond their means for the last couple of years. Their wage bill compared to their turnover is is one of the highest in the league. I think they were at about one hundred and twenty percent of turnover at one point, or of 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 sorry of of gross income at one point. Like that's that's a shocker. They've been living on a a top six budget. But they don't have a top six budget. They've got a middle middle of the pack budget, and they're playing like a a bottom half, a bottom six team. Yeah, um, like I think the squad has been really, really oddly built over the last three seasons. At least there was a period there where Leicester had some of the most exciting young players there, and they were adding a couple of really good ones uh, around them to support them. But I think. First of all, let's be honest, Brendan Rodgers did not get the best out of the potentially very good players he signed. I mean, people like uh, Sumare coming in, for example, they've never seen anywhere close to the best of him. Never. He was very, very good as a ball winner and a ball carrier. And he was terribly used at the beginning. And then he was completely ostracised, left out of the squad entirely. He's come back in now and playing alongside Thielemann and centre mid. But, you know, you're not going to suddenly get six games of very, very good player out of him after a year and a half of completely overlooking his best traits, you know? Um, I think the defence is an absolute abomination. I really do. Individually, I cannot stand half of these players. I think Castagna was all right when they signed him as a wing-back, but as a full-back, I don't like him, and I think he's been terrible this season anyway. Uh, Christensen, let's just leave him aside because he's a much more recent arrival. James Justin, I think, is good, but injured too much. And in the middle, I don't even know where you want me to start. I think my thoughts. Well, you can start with your favourite player in the league, Woot Faze. I mean, I don't really have anything to add, which is not going to sound mean. I just think he's crap. I genuinely think he's <laughs> absolutely awful. He's. Let, let, let's come back to it in a sec, right? Let's, let's actually look at his recruitment since, since Rogers took over. So... First summer he takes over. He takes over in, like, February from um, Claude Pugh. He signs James Justin, who they had been trying to sign in the January, which suggests he wasn't a Brendan target, he was a club target. They spend 20-odd million on Aosi Perez, who I think it's fair to say has been a flop. 
they make the Yuri Thielemans deal permanent. He'd been there from the January on loan. So again, not a Rogers target. And they signed Dennis Pryat, or Dennis Pratt, however it's pronounced. And I think it's fair to say that he has also been a flop. Then we move on to the following summer. After he finishes fifth, bottling top four in spectacular fashion. They bring in Timothy Castanier, definitely a Rodgers signing because they, he tried to sign him at Celtic. And like you said, he's been he's been okay when used as a wingback because he is a wingback. He's atrocious as a fullback. And they signed Wesley Fafana. Now, there's no doubt that was a success because they ended up getting well over double their money when they sold him. But, like, you're not really going to give them credit for signing Wesley Fafana, given everybody in Europe was after Wesley Fafana. Sorry, you're not going to give them credit for discovering Wesley Fafana, given everyone in Europe was after him. It was a great move to get him. They also signed Cengiz Under on loan, who I remember you had some rather interesting comments about. He's a fat hobbit and he still is. <laughs> Those were the comments. Um, so he sells Damari Gray for two million, which was a, a bit of a bonehead move, and let Calvin Bassey go on a free to Rangers, who turned around twelve months later and sold him to Ajax for twenty odd million, um, or two years later, I think it was. And then we move into the summer of twenty twenty one, and he brings in Pats and Daka, very highly regarded. Everybody is looking at him. Um, he has been, a fl- I think you'd say, flop so far in his two seasons there. I don't really think you could claim it's been a success for nine league goals and 51 appearances. Um, they bring in Bubakari Samari, who was awful last season to the point that he almost didn't get a squad number for this season. And there was talk of them selling him in January, or sorry, last summer and then again in January at a significant loss on what they paid. He signed Brian Bertrand, a player he tried to bring to Liverpool. He's been a disaster. I, I'm not sure. Has he even played five games? Uh, he's played four league games since joining, 11 in all competitions and none this year. He signed Yannick Vestergaard in the most Brendan move ever. He'd had a half-decent season with Southampton, largely based on his ability to play long passes, ignored all the defensive red flags and brought him in. He played 20 times last season, 10 in the Premier League, zero league appearances this summer, or this season, three appearances in all competition. Uh, Fair to say that was a flop as well. And then this season, he brought in Woot Faze in the summer. So far... It hasn't been great. Uh, he brought in Victor Christensen in January. He he does look genuinely like a very promising prospect at left back. And somebody that maybe, if they go down, we could take a look at if Leicester needed money to bring in as, as a Costas replacement successor to Robbo type. Um, they signed Nathan Opoku from Syracuse University. I know nothing of him. I don't think he's... But he's gone on loan straight away. And they signed Harry Souter from Stoke. Now, Harry Souter and Vest- Yannick Vestergaard are very similar players. They're big, they're dominant in the air, 
they're god awful on the floor in terms of you know one v one defending. They're unbelievably slow, but they can ping a nice long ball. So basically, because one of them flopped, he went and bought the other one. And Harry Suter is currently not getting anywhere near the first team. Uh, they also brought in Tete on loan. And in credit to that lad, he's had a couple of really uh, impressive performances surrounded by shit. I, I think it's fair to say that Brendan's recruitment at Leicester has been garbage. As it was at Liverpool, as it was at Celtic, he's just not good in this area. And one of the problems he has is that he refuses to listen to the advice of others. So when he took over at Leicester, they had a really good recruitment department. That was something that a lot of clubs were envious about. And he basically just pushed them all out of the way, installed his man, and went and did his own thing. And it has proven to be a disaster. He did the same thing at Liverpool. He ignored the advice of Edwards and Fallows and Hunter. And we all remember the hatchet piece that was written about Edwards by that prick on Sunday Supplement who writes for a paper we won't name, which had clearly come from Brendan Rodgers. Like, this is the main downfall of Rodgers because nobody would suggest Brendan Rodgers can't get his teams playing good football. Like, that's the trademark of a Rodgers team. They play an attractive brand of football. But he does have a major deficit when it comes to his kind of talent identification and when it comes to the defensive side of the football and when it comes to you know late season situations where there's big pressure like the Swansea team that he managed he basically bottled automatic promotion and then came up through the playoffs which was you know that was good uh bottled the title with us couldn't bottle the title with Celtic. There was there was no competition. But at Leicester, he he did manage to spectacularly throw away two huge leads for for top four spots. Why did they keep him so long, Carl? Why did they wait till April? Because surely to God, starting the season with you know one draw and then six straight defeats was reason to remove him. Surely the four defeats coming back out of the World Cup was reason to remove him. And surely, like, you know, the first four of the seven losses he oversaw in his last eight league games, surely the first four was enough to say, okay, well, you know, a six-game losing streak, a four-game losing streak, uh, this is another four-game losing streak, and we're, we're sliding down the table. We're, we're 16th now. Surely that was the time to, to get rid of him. Not wait until you're 19th. I mean, I can only assume that part of the reason he wasn't um, offloaded beforehand, let's say, was because they were all making sure that there was no uh, air conditioning in their offices uh, before he was dismissed. Because, I mean, that's that's the real moral of this story, isn't it? In 2015, we got air conditioning in, in the Kirby offices, and and here we are uh, eight years later unless they were going to get relegated. So that's, that's the link there, isn't it? Um, I don't really know. I think... I think at the beginning of the season there was mitigation in terms of like no signings had been made and they didn't have any money and they were sort of refocusing the fact that although they were still expending that that big top half money on wages they hadn't added anything and they thought well Rogers was certainly making the the very vocal um 
changing of expectations, let's say, about, you know, we have, we've not got any money, we can't compete, it's going to be a struggle all season long, that kind of thing. So maybe they were trying to overcome that in a different way, or maybe they were trying to live with that and think that, you know, maybe later in the season things will have turned around. Because it was only just after the transfer window shut when they did go on that first, well, it wasn't at any point in an unbeaten run, but at least they had, what, four or five wins in the space of seven or eight yeah. games, something like that. That was that one decent run so maybe from that point they kind of thought you know, we're not going to be challenging anywhere but we're not going to have a you know a relegation concern to, to really go on but you know since boxing day three yeah. wins that's that's you know so so poor and he obviously only got two of them uh, I, I think they did wait too long I think they maybe didn't really have the any great options as to who they really wanted who they thought could really do the job and keep them up and they probably were happy to see out the season with Rodgers if they were picking up a win here and there but when it didn't come obviously they've had to react very very late and I suppose even though Leicester have been very very poor and hammered again by Fulham we kind of do have to point out that one win and two draws in those three matches there before the Fulham game that's actually their best run since February January into February As, as poor as that is that's still an improvement Oh, yeah, absolutely. It absolutely is. Like, I do wonder, you know, you come out of that um, World Cup break, you lose your first four, you draw your fifth one, you also go out of the League Cup uh, in that run, but you do win against Gillingham and Walsall in the in the FA Cup. I do wonder if they just, after losing 2-0 away to Forrest... If they'd made the decision then to sack him, because at that point they're 15th, and there's a, a gruffly voiced man pacing his house somewhere in the Burnley region. Or maybe he lives in Nottingham, I don't know where Sean Dyche lives, but wouldn't Sean Dyche coming in in January have made more sense than Dean Smith in April? You know, like, I, I think they, they waited so long that the decent options that were out there got snapped up. Lopetegui got taken, Unai Emery got taken, Sean Dyche got taken. And all of a sudden, they were just left going, well, what's left in that bucket over there? Oh, there's Dean Smith. What's in it with him? Oh, he's got John Terry next to him and Craig Shakespeare. Well, we had Craig Shakespeare as manager and he was shit. Ah, yeah, but he's got Dean Smith with him now and John Terry. Like, it just, it, it baffles belief. And we'll go through the squad because I still don't think it's excusable for them to be where they are. I know they've had injuries. But this is the squad that that you have. And there are major issues with it. <laughs> Let me say, major issues with it. And we'll start with what I think is the biggest issue. Carl, their goalkeepers this season have been Danny Ward and Daniel Iverson. And I would say if you were to list every goalkeeper who's played in the Premier League this season, whether it's one minute or 3,000 minutes, they have been, if not the two very worst, certainly two of the three or four worst. And they're both at one club. Like that is, that's a major problem. Why was Kasper Schmeichel allowed leave if this was what they had in the cupboard? They didn't need to let Kasper Schmeichel leave. He had a year left in his contract. They only got like a million quid for him. I get he might have asked to leave, but could you not have said, look, not this summer. We can't afford to replace you. Give us another year. 
and then you can go wherever you want and you'll go with our blessing and you'll go with all of our thanks we need this one more thing for you even wait till january casper just get us through the first half of the season because because danny ward and daniel iverson is what we have here instead um, I, I don't know, and there was lots of talk at the time that Casper really, really wanted out at that exact moment, and I guess from that regard you can understand if they want to let him go, but you still have to have an alternative in place. Uh, I remember saying this to you at the beginning of the season, I wonder whether basically Danny Ward had not held them hostage in any way, because I'm not really sure what he could have over him, but certainly would have gone to him and would have pleaded to be able to make his case to have half a season in goal, because... He was going to the World Cup of Wales. He would have been wanted to be first choice and he really would have wanted to be in as good shape as possible. And so that would mean games and that would mean giving his opportunity. And so maybe it was a club thing that they actually said, okay, well, you know, we will because then we won't have to buy a new goalkeeper. Then we won't have to reinvest anything in in that position. And obviously they would have hoped that Ward was going to be as close to the top of his game as possible because... Again, he was going to the World Cup and he wanted that opportunity and he wanted to be in a, in, in a really good way. Ultimately, he's not proved to be Premier League calibre. That's No, and they had him for four years beforehand. They knew he wasn't. Like they had to have known he wasn't. It's not like he turned up. They had him for four years. So if that's what, if, And I think you may well be right. I do think Danny Ward might have gone and pleaded his case. And that would be absolutely right, let's say that. And, and he would be right to do yeah, that. Absolutely. He would be absolutely right to do that. Like, that's exactly what you want to see. If you're the manager, you want Danny Ward coming and knocking on the door and saying, look, I've been here four years. I want my chance. Give me my chance now. But as the manager, you, you still have to kind of look at it objectively. Is this guy good enough? And if you've watched him in training every day for this long and not given him an opportunity to this point... Like, he's there nearly five years. He's got 47 appearances for the club. And the vast majority of them came this season. You know, Everson's been there since 2018 as well. He's played 14 times, and most of them came this season. I just think that was a big mistake. Defensively, I think they could have good fullbacks, but injuries have killed them. James Justin is, is really good, but torn ACL, torn Achilles, that's horrendous. Ricardo Pereira, he's, he's a good player. He's had a bunch of injuries. Left backs, I quite like Luke Thomas. I think he's good. I'm not really sure why they went and spent $17 million on another young left back when they had a good young left back. Even if, even if Christensen is better, which I think he is, I don't think that was an area that needed to be upgraded in January. If you had that money to spend... Why not buy a real centre-back instead of buying Harry Souter? All of their centre-backs are tragically bad. Brute phase has been a disaster. Soyuncu has fallen off a cliff, climbed halfway back up, and then leaped back down. Um, Johnny Evans, solid, but just never fit. Like, Johnny Evans this season has played 10 times in the league. Last season he played 18. He's not someone you can rely on. Harry Souter is a championship player. Daniel Amarty isn't a centre-back, but Brendan insisted he was. Yannick Vestergaard is garbage. And Lewis Brunt is a young, unproven player. So there's some major issues. When your goalkeeper's crap and your centre-backs are crap, you're going to have problems. But in midfield, Carl, there's lots of talent. Harvey Barnes is one of the better left-wingers in the league. Yuri Thielemans is a very, very good player. 
James Madison is an outstanding player. Kiernan Dewsbury Hall, I think, is excellent. Will Fendidi, when fit, is one of the better defensive midfielders in the league. He's just never fit. Dennis Pryat, I mean, he's decent, but he's not. He's a squad player. He's a squad player, yeah. Hamza Chowdhury's a squad player. Bubakari Samari hasn't developed there at all. And then they've got young Tete, the Brazilian that they brought in in January, and Mark Albrighton. But, like, there's a lot of talent there. I don't know how they haven't been able to cobble together a consistent midfield. And then in attack, you've got Vardy, Iheanacho, Patsandaka, and Iosi Perez. Again, there's talent there, there's goals there. It's just they, they haven't gotten the best out of... I would say of the midfielders and attackers, the only two that they've gotten anything resembling decent seasons out of are James Madison and Harvey Barnes. And Barnes, they just don't... Rogers left him out for bunches of games. Like, would have him come off the bench with five minutes left when he was probably their best goal threat. Both of them have hit double figures this season in the league, which is a hell of an achievement considering the team's been garbage. But I just... They never seem to figure out who they wanted up front, what they wanted at wide... It's just been such a chaotic mess. I don't really know how it's gone so badly for them. I mean, I don't want to keep coming back to the same thing, but I think so much of it stems from the organisation. The centre-backs are not a partnership, and not they never have been at Leicester in Rogers' tenure. Um, even when they were playing a back three, it was such a mishmash of full-backs and centre-mids and maybe one centre-back, and it was never, ever, ever a really cohesive unit. Um, when they have been playing a back four, I don't think the central midfield partnership ahead of them have been particularly balanced. I think even now it's Tielemans and and Sumari of late. I don't think that there's a real holder there. I don't think there's a real controller or protector for the back four there. you got one who can win the ball, but at his best he wins the ball by rampaging all over the yes. pitch, which means you need somebody sat behind him, which is not Tielemans. You know, Tielemans can sit, but he's not dynamic enough to win the ball back all the time. You're not going to get the best out of his range of passing or his creativity in the final third if he's sat back all the time. So it's just not balanced. It's not. And individually, as I've said, I think Soyuncu was wildly overrated even three years ago when he had a better season. I think he was very limited in what he could do and what he could do well and how he needed to be protected to do it. And Woot Face is just garbage. Just absolute shit. He was shit last year. He was shit after they signed him. He was shit on top of shit against us and scored two own goals. And he's been largely shit since then. I'll have you know he currently sits fourth on my Liverpool Player of the Year poll. So um, <laughs> those three points he gifted us that night at Anfield were valuable. Valuable in that role. Do you know what? Look, I, 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 like I said, I don't. I'm, I'm only joking. Obviously, I'm exaggerating how bad he is. He's, he's a defender and he's fine. He's a specific type of defender though, which I think is terrible. And that kind of centre back is. We've seen loads of them. It's that type who has to win every single ball they see, and it's so, so destabilising for a defensive unit. There's a lot of danger. Got got yes, Lovren, Tyro Mings, Skirtle. Take your pick. All of those defenders are the same. They see the ball and they have to go for it like a dog who has absolutely no obedience in him whatsoever and they just have to do whatever they do to just try and jump around the front of the, the forward who just turns them. They don't have the pace to recover. They're not agile. They're not 
you know, particularly even that strong, to be perfectly honest. None of those are, even though they're physical defenders. They're not that strong that they can hold off people all the time. Uh, technically limited at best. Uh, just just not very good at all. And to, be, to have a defender like that, you have to have someone behind them who is either brilliant organisationally at keeping everybody else in check or has excellent recovery pace or is just superb individually and can read all the mistakes which are coming their way and all the rest of it. And Soyuncu's not that. He's not even remotely close to any of that. Well, Soyuncu, in his defence, has barely played this season. Like, this shit is not on him. He came yeah, no, in, no, no. He came saying, in recently. He's, he's in... In... No, no, but he's partnering Faiz at the minute. Oh, he is that's at the minute, yeah. Yeah, but, that's what I'm saying him for. But, like, when you buy Wood Faiz and your partner from is going to be Johnny Evans, which is what the plan was, and that's an injury-prone 35 or 36-year-old Johnny Evans... Yes, he's got that organisational side. He doesn't have any pace, and he's not there for three quarters of the season. So your other option is going to be Yannick Vestergaard, who can't move, or then it's going to be Harry Souter, who can't move. Like this is—it's just a catastrophe. But you know what's going to happen, Carl? We've said all this, and I think we're right on all of this in regards to the goalkeeping situation, the centre back situation, and on Monday. None of these players are turning up. It's going to be a 26-year-old Gigi Buffon in goal. And it's going to be <laughs> 1992, Costa-Curta and Beresi as the two yeah. centre-backs. And they're going to be unbelievable. And Wilf Ndidi is going to forget about all the injury problems. And he's going to be like Marcel Desailly sat in front of them. And they're just it's going to be like... When Kante comes back and just has a man of the match against us, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly what it's going to be. Because this is what happens to us over and over again. And Barnes and Madison are going to play like Boban and fucking Donadoni in that great Milan team. <laughs> and they're going to be unbelievable. Like, this is what's going to happen. Dewsbury Hall's going to be popping up here and there and doing all Dewsbury Hall things, looking like fucking... Uh, he's he. I, I actually really like him. I don't want to say it. I re- like. I really like some of these players. Like I really like Jewsbury Hall. I really like Madison. I think Barnes is excellent. And like those three, and then Didi, who's twenty six years of age, they're all between twenty four and twenty six. They should be the foundation of Leicester moving forward. And even Thielemans is only twenty six. Like that should be. That midfield should have been a real position of strength for them this year. And Sumari's 24 as well. Like They're all in that prime age. Even Dennis Pryat's 26. Hamza Chowdhury's or 20, 28. Hamza Chowdhury's 25. Like they've got all the midfielders in the age bracket you want and they're the kind of profiles you want. But whether it's injuries or inconsistencies or bad coaching or bad game plans, they're getting... Far less than what these players are capable of. Even Madison and Barnes. Like, they've had good seasons, but they're capable of more. But that defence is just... It's a train wreck. It's an absolute train wreck. And they don't seem to know which striker they want. But I, I do like, individually, I like Vardy, you know. he He's going to be Jamie Vardy and do all the Jamie Vardy things. And... I like Ian Acho, but if he could put the ball in the net a bit more often, it'd be really nice. And I like Daka for what he can offer. I don't really like Ayosi Perez, but you know, there's 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 so much talent in that squad. Even the fullbacks, like we said, there's there's good fullbacks there. It is literally centre back and goalkeeper, 
and then injury problems. That's that's where they've fallen down so badly. But oh, what a what an absolute mess! So they face us on Monday, and as we speak, they are currently sitting in the bottom three, following the last round of games. They sit eighteenth. 30 points from 35 games, three games to save their season. And I think quite a difficult three games, in fairness. Us at home, Newcastle away, and then West Ham at home. I mean, if we're being realistic, if form holds, they might take three points at home to West Ham. And I don't think that'll be enough to keep them up because Everton already, oh, sorry, Forrest already have 33 points so they only need one more point to finish above Leicester Everton have 32 points and you, you would say an easier run in after the City game with, with Wolves and Bournemouth you've got Leeds bumbling about down there as well they've got Toon, West Ham and Spurs which is tougher but is the big, ha- big, big Ham the Big Sam shithouse factory um <laughs> I just had gammon on my mind there for a second. Like it's it's looking it's looking really tough for them to get out of this un- unless they pull off a big surprise by beating us or beating Newcastle. It, it is looking like they'll go down. Yeah, I mean I had 35 points as the margin for staying up this season. I would probably even bring that down to 34 now, but Realistically, I think Everton, one more win, that takes them to 35. I think they'd be safe, simple as that. So Leicester, I think, need to look at winning two games here to give themselves a chance because they're not going to go unbeaten between now and the end of the season. Um, I just don't see anything else other than they have to win two the games The one thing here. standing in their, in their favour is they do have the best goal difference of the five teams. They've got minus 15 as a goal difference. Everton are minus 21. Leeds are at minus 25. Forrest are minus 31, which could well be their downfall. If Leicester could win one and Forrest were to lose their remaining three. Um, but again, yeah. like the, the big Sam factor, maybe he can shithouse a win over Newcastle and maybe, you know, just get a, get a result against Spurs on the final day or away to Moyes with West Ham's focus been on the Conference League. Um, and then Southampton yeah. are minus 33. But they're, they're as good as gone. Like, Southampton, to stay up, would need Everton, yeah. Leicester and Leeds to lose the rest of their games, and they'd need to win the rest of their games because their goal difference is is so much worse than both Everton and Leicester. Um, so I think, th- I think they're gone, so we're looking at two from four. And, and right now... I have a really tough time seeing Leicester stay up. I really do. I, I would trust Sam Allardyce more to get out of that situation, even with the harder run of games, than I would trust Dean Smith. And I would trust the character in the lead squad over the character that I've seen from this Leicester squad in the last 12 to 18 months. I could see both Leicester and Leeds winning at home on the final day. Leeds beating Spurs because they're a pointless irrelevance at that stage and Leicester beating West Ham because as you say mm. they probably will have focus elsewhere and they will definitely be well they already are safe so I could see both of them winning that game I don't see them yeah. getting points anywhere else and I, I think Forrest will get a point at some point in the three games yeah. you know they've won two of their last three confidence is really good there right now 
and that would mean Everton one win or a couple of draws and they're already out of reach. So I I think as it is now is as it, is as it will finish. Yeah, like you could definitely see Everton beating Bournemouth on the final day at home because Bournemouth will be on the beach. And Palace host Forest and Forest could well get a draw there. The other two games are tougher, Chelsea and Arsenal. But they could easily get a draw at Forest to keep themselves up. Um, and, and that would be, yeah, that would be Leicester and Leeds gone down, which I, I don't think many people would have had Leicester in their bottom three in preseason. Um, what about us then for this game, Carl? So Jurgen has kept a lot of the same players in the team over the last run of games. Um, I, I'm not really sure what to expect going into this one. So last time out against Brentford, he went Ali in goal, Trent, Ibu, Virgil, Robbo. I'm expecting it to be the same uh, goalkeeper back four. He went with Fabinho as the six. I think that's nailed on. He went with Curtis as the left-sided midfielder. I think that's nailed on. He went with Mo on the right wing. I think that's nailed on. So that leaves us three positions. Now, Cody Gakbo, I think, is certain to start. It's just a question of where. Does he start through the middle as the nine? Does he start in that right-sided midfield role again, which didn't really work against Brentford? But there were a couple of moments where he did nice things, dropping in to pick the ball up, turn and drive forward. Um, my assumption is Luis Diaz will come back in on the left wing. So where would you... So, do you, so Firstly, do you think Diaz starts left wing? Secondly, where would you start Cody? Up front or in midfield? If he's in midfield, who starts up front? If he's up front, who starts in midfield? Uh, yes to Diaz coming back in and Gakpo up front for me. Um, not averse to seeing him in midfield again. And maybe maybe this midfield is not a, a terrible one to do it in because his movement in behind them is, is probably going to cause problems but to an extent I would probably be influenced a little bit by the weekend result I honestly would if Man United out beat Wolves and Liverpool can go above them by winning I'd maybe be more inclined to play Gakpo midfield and be really aggressive up front try and get you know, basically the win as early as possible let's say um, but in a more pragmatic scenario and assuming United do win at home I would play Gakpo up front and keep a couple more attacking options on the bench Yeah I think that's fair so if if let, let's just say Cody starts up front so you've got Salah, Cody and and Diaz yeah. you've got Fabinho and Curtis you've got the back four you've got the goalkeeper who then starts in that right-sided role? And can I offer you, given it seems to be a bit of a revolving door at the minute, we've seen Henderson, it hasn't worked. We've seen Harvey, it didn't really work at all. We've seen Cody, it didn't really work. He He's only played in midfield, I think, for us in a three once. But would it be worth trying Fabio Carvalho in that role? it would seem to be a role that would suit his skill set. I mean, 
Not for me, but you know what I think about that right-sided role. It needs to be someone much more defensively inclined, much more defensively balanced. But we don't Sorry. have anyone to play there who's defensively inclined. No. So, but I would therefore play someone who is even more attack-minded. Even more attack-minded than Fabio Carvalho. No, I wouldn't play someone oh, who was sorry, even more sorry, attack- I get you, I get you. Um, see, I just don't know. I don't think Carvalho's ready for Premier League football at the level we need to be. And I don't think, you know, after the last few games and wins and all the rest of it and putting ourselves in the position, I, I don't think that this is the moment for us to be gambling a little bit. Keep the pressure on them. That's all you've got to do. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. I fully agree. It was just just a thought because I do think his quick one-touch passing and movement would fill... Like, if if the plan is for Mason Mount to play that role, I think Carvalho does certain things similar to Mount in terms of one-touch play. But So you're ruling him out. You're playing Cody up front. You've got, you've got a choice then. Do you go with Jordan Henderson, or do you go with Harvey Elliott? Uh, I guess I'd probably go with Henderson. It would seem to be the most likely situation. He has... I sent your disapproval. He has sat out. Um, he didn't start the last... Two of the last three, is it? He started against Fulham? Yeah. Didn't start the Spurs game or the Brentford game. So maybe he comes in for this one, drops out for Villa. Although Villa's probably the game you'd want him in more. And then Southampton final final day of the season. Um he may well start all three, given there's you know decent gaps between them all. But um yeah, yeah I mean like it's ugly when he but he plays there, it really is. He doesn't offer anything on the ball and off the ball he's he's a non factor. But yeah, he probably does come back in. So with that team in mind, and with Leicester City coming into this game with some injuries, uh, notable injuries for Leicester, James Justin, Kalichi Iannaccio, Yannick Vestergaard, and Ryan Bertrand. Um, what is your prediction for this game? I'm going to keep a tight rein on it and say 2-1 to Liverpool. It, it does kind of have that feel, doesn't it? has that feel of a real mm. tight kind of shitty game and like and it shouldn't do because they're so open at the back and they've oh, conceded garbage. what seven to Fulham and Everton we should be confident of scoring yeah, two but they're three. garbage but, but we're us and this is what happens yeah. <laughs> like yeah I'm still yeah no I, I think we'll win the game as well but uh, like I, I just if you look at the last eight games Carl we didn't play well against Chelsea and we should have lost. I think that's a fair assessment. They they missed two big chance. well, they missed a big chance through Kovacic and the Kai Havertz goal that was ruled out. If it had just hit his chest rather than his arm, it's a goal. We were very poor in that game. The Arsenal game was strange. They battered us for a while, then we battered them for a while. We get a draw. The Leeds first half, we were pretty poor. Scored a couple of goals because they made mistakes and then walloped them in the second half. We weren't good against Forrest, weren't good against West Ham. We had 15 unbelievable minutes against Spurs, but were dreadful then after that. 
We weren't great against Fulham, weren't great against Brentford. So, like, we're winning these games without playing particularly well. I would like to, I, I would be really interested to see what would happen if we could sustain that start against Spurs for like half an hour. You know, because I, I felt like when the third goal went in, Spurs gave up. But because we then started to prick about, they, they got a foothold in the game and they started to feel a bit more confident. And then obviously they end that first half in great, in a great situation where they almost score two goals and they hit the post. Now it was offside, but they went into half time really confident. Um, and, and they pulled one back. So they almost scored two, did score one and hit the post. So they went into half time on a high, despite the fact that we had absolutely run them ragged up until the Salah goal. I'd like to see what would happen if we could sustain that for an extra burst in a game, an extra 15 minutes. I, I just think you could do that to somebody for, for 30 minutes. I think you'd probably have four or five goals and they just would have to, like, they'd just give up. Then you could just coast the rest of the game. But I don't think we have it in us right now to sustain it for whatever reason. Yeah, that's that's reasonable and partly because we're still not the team we need to be. But also I do think that for that same reason it is important that not necessarily all by our own doing, but one way or another, we've managed to keep two clean sheets in the last two games. And that's something we will need to do between now and the end of the season. Yeah. Another couple of times, I would say, just because we're not really all there yet, we're, we're still a bit of a hit and miss side on the ball and we're a bit of a hit and miss side defensively. And you've just got to find ways sometimes to get a clean sheet, even if that does involve a bit of fortune. Yeah, I fully agree. And Alison's also going to be looking at the, the clean sheet table. I'm thinking I've got 13, despite the fact that I've had very little help this season. I'm joint second behind David De Gea, who's currently throwing in goals on a regular basis. If David De Gea ends up with the Golden Gloves, it will be a scandal because he's not been good this season. Level with Alisson, Aaron Ramsdale and Nick Pope. Ali will be looking and saying, I want to get to 16. I want clean sheets the rest of the way out here. And I think he'll be in, impressing that on his defenders. Like, the clean sheets matter here. Let's at least build this defensive foundation. Especially you, Robbo, because you're probably out of the team next year. Let's, let's end this season as the strong defence we can be. Um, so I'm going to go 2-0 to Liverpool. I'm going to say we keep a clean sheet... And we managed to score twice. But I think we might batter them. And it might be one of those games where, like I said, the goalkeeper turns into Buffon. The centre-backs play really well. But we get a worldie out of somebody. Maybe Mo, maybe Diaz, maybe Cody. And then we get another late goal because they're trying to push on and and get something from the game. So I'll go 2-0. All right, well, in your scenario, I reckon it's Trent with the opener and then Trent with the assist late on. Yeah, Trent for... Trent for Darwin on a breakaway or something. He's come off the bench. They're pushing forward and Trent just finds Darwin over the top and Darwin scores because it's Danny Ward and he fucking better score. Um, right, that will do us. What do you have to plug before we go? 
A uh, little bit of look this weekend at the championship playoffs. Um, I think Coventry is going to be my focus there, and then there may well be something for the Europa League games and that. Uh, and if not, then obviously new stuff in the week. Do you have a favoured team to come up? Because you're you're of a similar vintage to myself. So when you were growing up, Coventry City were a Premier League club and. It was all the excitement when Middlesbrough came up and, and you know, opened the new stadium and brought in exciting yeah. players. And you'll probably kind of have vague memories as well of, of Luton as a top flight team and the plastic pitch and Kenilworth Road and, yeah. and all of that. Do you have a favoured team to come up? So I think Coventry, just because, you know, they'd be then the first team to be Premier League all the way down to League Two and then back all the up. way back up to the Premier League. That would be a, a pretty huge story. Um, and also because, you know, one of my earliest memories or earliest eras, I should say, of knowing all the players and all of that was would have been all like the, you know, Noel Whelan and... Noel Whelan, uh, that's a Huckabee and, you know, loads of those sorts of era of Coventry players, Dion Dublin and all the rest of them. So quite, quite fun to see them back. And after that, if not, then I think Sunderland, just because of the whole noise around Newcastle this mm. year, that probably be another good storyline for the Premier League to have their biggest rivals back and they're always a bit of a chaotic club and all of that Middlesbrough are just Sunderland light really they're not quite as noisy they're not quite as fun they're not quite as rivalry with Newcastle so I'd put them further down the list but Coventry probably my preference yeah I, I can see that for certain Noel Whelan is a hell of a shout great name to pull out there uh, signed by Big Ron for two million um yeah yeah, I, I, the, the thing with Coventry as well, and it, look, this is this is true of most of these clubs. Coventry's fans have really been through the shit in recent years with this club. And the stadium, and it's the stadium nonsense where they've been forced to play here, there, and everywhere over the last couple of years has been horrendous on those fans. But game after game after game, those fans kept turning up, whether they were playing. In was it Northampton they were playing in for a while, and then they were sharing Birmingham Stadium, but now they're back at the well, it was the Rico Arena. Now it's the Coventry Building Society Arena, and it's good to see. And like I, I remember Highfield Road as a as a great place, a great stadium, one of the old stadiums, and it was just fun. Um, yeah, so yeah, I I would probably join you in Coventry, but I think all these clubs have great stories to tell, and. The one thing I, I really would be interested with Borough is I, I'm I'm really keen to see how Michael Carrick would do in the Premier League. He's done an unbelievable job this year. So that, that would be the thing pushing Borough for me as well as kind of the nostalgic factor. But Coventry and Luton also hold big nostalgic factors for me. And their fans have been through a lot. And I just think it would be funny if Nathan Jones walks out midway through the season to live his Premier League dream gets sacked quite shortly after and the club he walked out on get promoted under a manager who previously this season was sacked by Luton's biggest rivals, Watford. Uh, there's a nice little story there. So that will do us for today, folks. Thank you, as always, for listening and we will see you next week. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.